All right, over my sabbatical, I read 20-some books. I had kind of this morning rhythm where I would, uh, I'd get up, I'd do a little working out, a little reading, uh, a little writing, a little reflecting, some praying. It was just kind of a good morning until about 1 p.m., and then I'd find something to do and bother people, particularly my wife. She'd go, are you still here? Are you home? What? Don't have something to do? <laughs> uh, so it was a good kind of morning rhythm. So I, I read these books. Also over the summer, we all experienced uh, a little bit of a difficult summer culturally. Our country's rhetoric and tension and divisions are rising, and we had some tragedies to deal with over the summer, including uh, mass shootings. And, and so the summer was a little difficult for us culturally. We're heading into a, an election year, a pres- presidential election year, so rhetoric and tension and accusations are flying, right? Anger and outreach is rising. So I, I'm having this good experience of rest. The country is just seeming to boil over with tension and division and accusations, And a lot is happening in the soul of America, politically. There are divisions. If you look at any political candidate, all you're going to hear from them is angry face and yelling. Everybody, angry face and yelling and accusations. It's just the way politics is. Uh, One recent study says you have to go back to the 19th century to find political rhetoric as crazy as it is today. It's been in, in the 20th century and beyond. We've never had political rhetoric like this. Then, of course, we have the mass shootings, which create accusations and finger pointing, immigration debates, racial tensions, daily accusations back and forth of racism, continued tensions around gender, environmental debates, rhetoric sharpening, anger rising, and even little pockets of violence, political violence in the United States of America. Just a little bit right now, but there's a concern that that could boil over. And it's a cultural thing. It's getting out of control. And, and the Christian community is not immune to that. In fact, over the summer, several Christian influencers publicly left Christianity, abandoned Christianity. I don't believe it anymore. That happened over the summer. And it's actually kind of gaining popularity. People are saying, we're done with this Christian religion. We're done with the division and the anger and the accusations and us against them. We are walking out. And as they walk out, they quote Jesus. We just need to love one another. Jesus said that. So you're leaving the Christian religion, but you're quoting Jesus. Don't leave Jesus, right? Don't leave the cause of Christ. But this is the rhetoric that's going on even in the Christian community, right? Theological debates are at a fever pitch. People are clinging on to what they were taught in Sunday school. This is what I was taught in Sunday school. This is where I'm comfortable. So anybody who challenges anything that we weren't taught in Sunday school, the outrage grows, the anger grows, the accusations grow, and it's getting worse. So I have all this time of personal rest. The tension in our country is rising. The tension within Christianity as a religion is rising. And and then I also spent some time just reading through the New Testament. I read through it several times over the summer. And as I read through the New Testament, it was an amazing experience because what we see in every syllable of the New Testament is a vision of unity. It's a vision of unity between God and us freely given by grace in Jesus Christ. It's a vision of unity, perfect unity within the church, perfect unity with God, perfect unity in the church, and a vision of perfect unity globally, every tribe, tongue, and nation in perfect unity. That's the vision of the New Testament. Every syllable is about unity. And so I was excited to to launch a fall service that we're gonna call Radical Unity. And it's about bridging these gaps 
between God and mankind, which God did in Jesus Christ. That's a done deal. But how do we bridge those gaps within the church to create a perfectly unified church? And how do we bridge those gaps even culture to culture, nation to nation, toward the vision of perfect unity globally? That's the New Testament. So I was excited about this. I, I prepped it. And then I thought, you know what? I'm not sure we're ready for it. And I'm just being honest. I'm not sure we're ready for this. As I've pretty well prepped out the fall, because I had more time than I knew what to do with, um, I don't think we're ready. And this is no accusation against us or even individually. I'm not sure I'm ready for it. This biblical vision of perfect unity with God by grace, perfect unity in the church, and perfect unity globally, it is a shock to our system. And as our cultural system is heading down increasing anger, increasing division, we're going, I mean, it's just this barreling down the road of division, anger, and outrage. We're going to do a fall series called Perfect Unity, and the, we're not going to know what to do with it. And so I thought, okay, in order for us and me to get ready for this series on radical unity, we've got to get our brains ready. We've got to get our, our mind ready for this. So we're going to do a two-week, just little mini-series called The Renewed Mind. Because the Bible talks about a renewed mind, and our mind must be renewed in order to embrace a vision of unity. Because everything in our mind resists unity. Everything in our human nature resists unity. Everything in our sinful nature resists unity. Our brain chemistry resists unity. Now, uh, one of the words that is most used about the direction of our culture in terms of our anger and division and outrage and accusations the word that I've heard most is, is insane. Our country's kind of going insane. You know what the definition of insanity is, right? Some of you will say doing something and expecting a different result. That's not the definition of insanity. I don't know who invented that, but it's entirely wrong. And never say it again, right? But since we're used to people inventing definitions for the word insanity, I've invented a definition of the word insanity. And it's not clinical. It's not right, but I'm going to use it. Here it is. Insanity, because it works for this series. Insanity is tearing apart what should be built up. That's insanity. Now, in all seriousness, just so I'm going to be serious for a moment, I, I am friends with people who are clinically insane. They're some of my most fun and interesting meetings of the week. And part of insanity is harming yourself. And you just, why did you do that? There's no rhyme or reason. It's insane. You harmed yourself. You harmed your friends. You harmed people you love, and you harm people that love you. And there's no rhyme or reason. But it, what insanity does is it tears apart what should be built up. Political leaders can act insane. Political leaders could tear apart communities with their words and with their actions. They can use fear to divide people, pit one group against another, destroy cultures and civilizations. Political leaders can do that. Religious leaders can tear apart what should be built up. Religious leaders can act insane using threats and fear, using the name of God to pit people against each other. We are the true believers. We are right. We are good. We are moral. We worship God correctly. They're immoral. They are not right. They're not pure. They don't worship God correctly. And we use God's name and fear to pit people against each other. That's insanity, tearing down what should be built up. I'll give you a micro example of how this happened yesterday, right? Yesterday. Andrew Luck, he gives this emotional, heart-wrenching explanation as to why he has to retire. He says, my body is broken down. And he says, my soul is broken down. Here's this guy who's just 
wrestled in this, you know, gladiator type environment and all the public pressure and his body cannot take it. It's injury after injury and pushing and pushing and pushing and pressure and pressure and pressure. And emotionally, mentally at a soul level, he can't do it anymore. He's retiring. And he did so with tears yesterday, but he says, I love my teammates. So he hang out with his teammates at the preseason game. And as he walked off the field, his own city booed him. That's insane. He's a human being, and he just poured out his heart to save his body, to save his soul. But he abandoned my team, my Colts. You ought to be ashamed, Colts fans. I know that wasn't you. I actually had prayer time with Colts fans last night. <laughs> kind of seriously did. But that's tearing down what should be built up. I mean, we're tearing down this person because he abandoned your football. I mean, come on, right? No, that's not everybody, but it was enough people. In fact, Andrew Luck said, I wish I didn't hear that, but I did, right? Tearing down what should be built up. And, and you know the main culprits of this are the main cultural culprits, the bad guys, the, the Darth Vader soundtrack should be played for news media, political parties, and religious leaders. They are the culprits, news media, political parties, religious leaders. That industry, those industries thrive on outrage, thrive on outrage. If I can get more people outraged by news media, I get more views, I get more clicks, which means I get more what? Money. As a politician, if I can create outrage, I get more attention, I get more what? Money. You have religious leaders creating outrage, pitting one person against the, the other. We're right, they're wrong. Outrage offering, you get more Money with outrage. I mean, Treadway, aren't you a religious leader? I hate to admit it. <laughs> but yeah. But we make a covenant that we're not going to foment outrage in us against them. We're not going to do it. News media, politics, and religion don't get sucked in. If I just watched Fox News only, I would think the Democrats are the spawn of Satan. I think that's literal, right? The way things are said, if I just watched Fox News, I would think, I would think the Democrats are the, pawn, are the spawn of Satan. And some of you are probably going, well, well yeah, what? <laughs> if I just watched CNN, I would think the Republicans are ushering in the Third Reich. <laughs> Seriously. It's outrage. Every syllable of the other side is just on fire and believe the worst and assume the worst and pile on all the comments of how evil and dangerous each other is. It's insanity tearing down what should be built up. We're on a hair trigger when it comes to politics. We're on a hair trigger when it comes to religion, right? We experience this at Rancho, you know, quite a bit. We're a little bit of, of an unconventional church in that we're a learning community. We're not about indoctrination. You know, you're not coming here for me to tell you what to believe. I mean, how childish is that, right? You're a grown-up. You have your Bible. You have your faith. We're having a discussion around matters of faith. So we're not an indoctrination community, right? And so every once in a while, you know, we like kind of open-mindedness and being widely read and, and sharing ideas. We share ideas from the sermon, agree, disagree, right? Let's walk this journey together. Well, um, over the summer, I, you know, I read these books, and I posted just a few of what I read on, on Instagram just, you know, to kind of share some thoughts and pretend like I had friends. And, and so one of the books, in fact, the most mainstream book I read all summer, a, a pastor just widely accepted by a wide range of the Christian faith, he wrote a book about the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant, law versus grace. And all he says is, hey, just don't mix law and grace. It's not a good mix. We do it all the time. Don't do that, right? And so I, I just wrote a few lines on that. 
And some people saw that I read that book and immediately started stomping around. Rancho does not going to teach for the old, from the Old Testament anymore. Rancho doesn't believe the Old Testament anymore. But, oh, my God. <laughs> and one of our pastors came alongside one of these outraged people and said, you know, we're doing a series on Proverbs right now. <laughs> Summer series, Proverbs, life plan. I mean, I just, but we're on a hair trigger. And you know what I did in response to that? I got outraged. Okay. <laughs> I'm in the same world here. I have the same human nature, sin nature, brain chemistry, right? The whole New Testament is this call to radical unity. Here's one example. Church of Galatia, torn apart by racial divisions, religious divisions, political divisions, Galatians 5.15. If you are always biting and devouring one another, which, by the way, is a ton of fun. If you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another, tearing down what should be built up, right? So let the Spirit guide you, not the flesh, not the human nature. Let the Spirit guide you. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. When we think of sinful nature, sometimes we think of people doing bad things, you know, sin out there, sexual sin, whatever. That's what we oftentimes think sinful nature is. No, no, no. Sinful nature is self-protection and tearing others down. That's sinful nature. That's Galatians 5. Galatians 5 is all about the, the flesh versus the spirit, fruit of the flesh, fruit of the spirit, and all of that's around unity. Sinful nature tears down others to protect or benefit us and our tribe. That's sinful nature. And you might think, tribe? I'm not a part of a tribe. You know, that's a, that's a long time ago. That's the uncivilized people. We're civilized people. No, we're not. We have more gadgets, <laughs> more technology, but we're not civilized people. We are just as tribal now as we have ever been. We're not running around, you know, the desert in loincloths. So we put ourselves together. Our neighborhoods look kind of nice. We're dressed nice. We have technology, but we're as tribal as we have ever been. We love our tribes. There's a a lot of study on neo-tribalism, and it is the epidemic right now, globally, is neo-tribalism. We want to cluster with same. And if we cluster with same, that's our tribe. And what I want you to do is just think about your same friends around you and just think about all of you in loincloths, because that's what's happening. That's our tribe. It's our new tribe. We love clustering with same. About the same age, yeah, I'm comfortable. About the same income, yeah, I'm comfortable. Same skin color, muscle menos, yep, okay, I'm comfortable. Same political background, same political opinions, all right, I'm good, yep, this is my tribe. That's where I'm going to hang. Those are my friends. That is my tribe. It's neo-tribe. We might as well be running around with loincloths. I'm not going to recommend that, but it's a visual, bad one. Why do we do this? Why are we all prone to this outrage? It is sin nature, human nature. It's what modern science calls brain chemistry. It's brain chemistry. Our brains are wired to perceive threats. You know, keep in mind, uh, survival's a good thing, right? If you're taking notes, survival's a good thing. Uh, the brain is wired to, receive, to, to perceive threats. That's a gift of God. So, you know, uh, I played a few rounds of golf this summer. More than a few. And uh, as Ryan Beaver's ball goes in the weeds, because mine does not, uh, we're looking for his ball out there, and, and as we're, you know, playing summer golf, looking for Ryan's ball in the weeds, we see a slithery thing. What does the brain perceive? It's a threat, right? If I see a slithery thing on the ground looking for Ryan's ball, I step back and send Ryan, right? <laughs> that's brain chemistry. That's, that's just normal. It's a gift of God, right? 
I just realized Ryan's dad is in the sermon. And I, I apologize. <laughs> and mother, yes. All right. Um, so the brain perceives threats. Now, uh, the brain's wired to perceive threats, which means if there's something foreign, brain says, bing, 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 it's a threat. So if I'm around people who are the same, there's no threat. That's my tribe. But what do tribes do? Tribes have to band together and be strong. Why? Because the other tribes might get us. The other tribes might take something from us. The other tribes might take our way of life or, or bring new ideas that I'm uncomfortable with. So we perceive people that are different than us as a threat, and the brain fires off. I'm going to show you a, a brain activity chart. This is just, just brain science, pretty simple stuff. This is brain activity. The horizontal line is sort of the median brain activity, right? When we think of ourselves now, our brain lights up like a Christmas tree. We are excited. I'm thinking of what I'm doing now. I'm thinking right now about where I'm going to lunch. As I'm standing here in front of you, I'm thinking right now. And my brain's going, ooh, me, now, food, right? That, that's fired. When I think of my future self, I don't care that much, right? When I think of my life five years from now, my brain goes kind of flat. And even right now, as I'm thinking about myself five years from now, I, I'm struggling to have some thoughts, right? It just kind of goes a little flat. That's why we get into credit card debt now because the future me has to pay for that, and that's his problem, right? <laughs> Truly, that's how the brain is wired. When we think about others, our brain goes below even its median level of activity. And we think about the future of others. I mean, we are just like the uh, zombies. There's no activity. This is brain chemistry. This is wired for survival. This is what the Bible calls sinful nature and human nature. This is what causes tribalism. It's what causes outrage. And we have to fight against it. We have to fight against it. Brian Walsh wrote extensively on kind of brain science regarding selfishness and selflessness. Here's what he says. When you think about yourself while inside a magnetic resonance imaging machine... The medial prefrontal cortex lights up like a Christmas tree. When we think about our family, it still lights up, just less. When we think about other people you have no real connection with, the brain doesn't do much. Brain activity diminishes the more we think about the future, either our future or the future of others. So the more a person is a stranger, the less our brain works, and the more we think about the future, the less our brain works. That's why we have $23 trillion in debt, and nobody cares. My kids have to pay for that. I don't, right? That's why whatever environmental issues we're dealing with, that's eh, really not our problem now. We think, me now, what, what can I do? We think about others' future. We flatline. Sinful nature, human nature, simple brain chemistry. And then here's this darn New Testament. And this Jesus who's trying to turn all that fun upside down. Philippians 2.3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. That's a heavy statement. Now, by the way, this, th these, are, um, these are imperatives. In other words, just do it. Don't wait till you feel like it. Just do it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, there's that word consider. That, that's forcing a thought. That's what that word means, to force a thought. Consider others more important than yourself. We've got to force humility. It doesn't come naturally. We've got to force ourselves to think less of us and more of others. So what the Apostle Paul here and what the New Testament is doing and what Jesus did is trying to, to say, hey, listen, your brain can be rewired here. Human nature can be rewired. Force yourself to be humble. Self-talk yourself down to an appropriate level and self-talk others to a higher level. That's the Christian lifestyle. That's how Jesus lived his life and we follow him. How can we change the way we think about ourselves? How can we change how we think about others? 
Now, fortunately, God wired the brain to be able to change. It's called neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is the ability of the brain to form and reorganize synaptic connections. So your brain can be rewired. And the way your brain gets rewired is when we force it to do things it doesn't want to do. So what the brain wants to do is puff up ourselves and protect ourselves right now. That's what the brain is wired to do. And so we have to force our our brain to think of ourselves in a more reasonable way. And so we have to force our brain to think humbly. Self-talk, I'm not that big a deal. Why did I just tell that story about myself? I'm not that big of a deal. We self-talk our way down to an appropriate level. And then we self-talk others to a higher level. And so for me, I'd just be, I'm not the greatest pastor in the world. I'm just going to be on. I have trouble remembering names. So, hey, my name is this, my name is this. I'm truly two seconds later. I'm like, why didn't I just put that name in my brain? Do you know what the honest answer is? I didn't care. I got to force myself to care. I've got, I've got to say, this human being's important. I got stuff to do. So my brain's like, I got this to do, this to do. What's your name? Blah, blah, blah. Move on, right? So I've got to force myself. That's the name. I'm going to put that name in my brain, right? Whatever it's going to take, I'm going to put that name in my brain. I'm going to ask questions that I care about, not just how you doing fine, move on. Ask about your kids. Ask about your story. Ask about, I mean, that's, that's rewiring the brain. And then over time, and I've, I've had to do this, and I've done it enough where I believe my brain is starting to get a little rewired, Right? looking people in the eye, caring about their stories, asking questions about their stories, extending empathy, right? The brain can be rewired. Romans 12, 1 through 3 is the cornerstone passage of rewiring the brain so that we can be ready for a radical unity message. Romans 12, 1 through 2. This is all in the context of unity. The entire book of Romans is about unity, right? Paul says to this church, fighting each other over Jew and Gentile issues, religious issues, political issues, power issues. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, he's begging here, urge, plead, beg. I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is the invitation. The mind can be renewed. Now, Romans 1 through 3 is totally subversive. There are so many problems There were Romans in this Roman church, Roman citizens. They had the political power, and they were throwing their politics around. They had political power over those who they were oppressing and invading and occupying. So they walked into the church having the political power of Rome, and they treated other people, especially the Jews, as less than them. The Jews come into this Roman church, and they have the word of God. They have the Jewish bloodline, right? So they're coming in with spiritual arrogance. We keep the law. We have a kosher diet. We're not as immoral as you. And so, and so they are trading barbs back and forth. And Paul says, I urge you toward radical unity. And that's going to happen by the renewing of your mind. He uses the word therefore. In Romans 11, he talks about God's mercy freely given to everybody. Therefore, freely give mercy to others. Sometimes we forget about that second half of the Christian life, right? First part of the Christian life is receiving mercy from God. God is going to forgive me now. God is going to give me eternal life, right? God is with me. He'll never leave me. Our frontal cortex is on fire. God does this for me, 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 woo. Then God says, and you get to share that same mercy with others, especially those who are not like you. And our brain goes flatline. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a one, two. It's a we receive mercy from God and it's freely given and yes, we're forgiven and given eternal life and he never leaves us and we have purpose and mission and vision and life. Yeah, but then give that same mercy to the next person. 
All right, that's when we got to force it. I'm going to self-talk down, and I'm going to talk others up. And we're going to rewire this sinful brain. And how do we do that? By offering our bodies as a sacrifice. Offering our bodies as a sacrifice. Well, what in the heck does that mean? Well, all over Rome, there were temples with altars that were burning grains and burning animals to please the gods. All over Jerusalem, there's this altar and it burning grains and burning animals as a sacrifice to Yahweh. So everybody's burning grains and animals and the stench of burning flesh and grain is all over these two cities. And so they understood what it means to offer a sacrifice, right? And the Apostle Paul says, enough of the grain, enough with the animals. You walk up on that altar. Sacrifice yourself. Now, the image of that is pretty stark because it's an image of slitting a throat, draining the blood, and burning the body. Paul says, why don't you go ahead and do that? That's a, that's a heavy-duty ask. But it, it makes perfect sense because who was the one we follow? We follow the one who was crucified. We follow the one whose brain worked entirely different, not bound by sin nature or human nature. We follow the one who gave himself on a cross so that the world would know the love of God, experience the forgiveness of God, and enjoy God's grace and mercy freely given. We follow Jesus, so it's not a far stretch to say we follow the one who sacrificed himself for the benefit of others. I get to do the same thing. I'm going to walk up on that altar, and I'm going to die to myself. I don't live for me. Here's the brain activity chart we talked about first. You know, we think of ourselves as through the roof. How about we flip that chart? How about this is what we're praying for? This is what we're going to rewire our brains for by the grace of God, the, the work of his spirit in our life, and by the guidance of his word. This is what we're going to do. You know, let's think of ourselves. No problem. We got to live. Don't touch the snake. Eat some food, right? That's fine. But when we think of others, we want our brains to light up like a Christmas tree. And that's a long process. And there's a lot of ways we can do that. We're going to talk next week about how to rewire the brain to look like this. We're going to talk about very specific ways. This is the vision. When we think of others, we want our brain to be on fire. When we think of the future of others, we want our brain to be lighting up like a Christmas tree. We want to be able to think about a far-off people in a far-off land from a different culture. We want to have a vision about how can they benefit how can I even give of myself for their benefit? How can I think about a world 50 years from now, even far after I'm gone, how can I make the world better for people 50 years ago in this community, in our nation, and throughout the world? How about if we had a church whose brains lit up like a Christmas tree, thinking about others near and far, thinking about the stranger, thinking about the long term? That could be a fun, fun church. I could do some pretty cool stuff. The Apostle Paul calls that rational worship. It's insane to tear down what needs to be built up, and that's just what we make a sport of now. This kind of stuff where we lay ourselves down on the altar and we die to ourselves and live for the benefit of others, that's rational. That's building up what needs to be built up, building up others, building up people that are in need, building up people who are marginalized, building up people who feel rejected, even rejected by God or God's people, to build up the stranger, to, to, to give our lives to build a better world. That's fun stuff. That's rational worship. And how does that happen? By the renewing of the mind. By the renewing of the mind. Pushing through sin nature, pushing through human nature, pushing through brain chemistry so that we will have the mind of Christ. Have the mind of Christ. 
Richard Longenecker said this about Romans, 1, uh, Romans 12, 1 through 3. He says that this passage is the complete interchange of thought, the complete interchange of will, the complete interchange of desire that results in a recognizable external change of behavior. That's the vision. Romans 12, 3 puts it this way. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Self-talk yourself down, self-talk others up. That's the Christian life. Simply put, it's a life of everyday sacrifice. And I'm telling you, that doesn't sell. It just doesn't sell. If we put on that billboard out there, come to Rancho, a life of everyday sacrifice, people will just fly right by there and go, next church. this is it. This is the life that Jesus lived. This is the life he gave for us. This is the life he wants us to live. And we can get there. And I'm telling you, when we walk that journey, there is no greater life than laying down our lives for the benefit of the other. I'm going to close in kind of an unconventional prayer. You can have your eyes open, closed. You can do whatever you want to every Sunday. I don't, don't care. Eyes open or eyes closed. But what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to say a couple of phrases and then I'm going to give you some space for your brain to repeat those phrases. This is us considering some things, forcing our brain against its will, right, to live for the benefit of others. Some of this stuff, I promise you right now, some of you will not be able to repeat some of the things I'm going to say. And let me just say that's okay. Just repeat them in your brain. If you can honestly repeat these phrases in your brain, do it. If you honestly can't, don't. Our God and Father... We thank you that Jesus Christ lived a life of everyday sacrifice, even giving himself on a cross to forgive the sins of the world and to bring us all into unity with you as a gift of grace. And in that spirit, we want to have the mind of Christ. So I consider my spouse more important than me, and I will live for his or her benefit. Repeat that in your own brain. I consider my children more important than me, and I will live for their benefit. I consider my friends more important than me, and I will live for their benefit. Now it's going to get harder. I consider those who disagree with me as more important than me, and I will live for their benefit. I consider people in the other political party more important than me, and I will live for their benefit. I consider people of a different cultural background as more important than me, and I will live for their benefit. And finally, I consider people who disagree with me on matters of religion and faith as more important than me, and I will live for their benefits. Our God and Father, this vision of a daily life of sacrifice is something so foreign to human nature, so foreign to our sin nature, so foreign to our brain chemistry, but we see in Jesus a life that was lived that turned all that upside down and lived for the benefit of others at great cost to himself. And while we resist this idea of a life of daily sacrifice for the benefit of others, we want to force this 
by your guidance, by your spirit, by your word, by encouraging each other, we want to force this into our brains, that our, that our brains would be rewired to look like the mind of Jesus Christ. We want to self-talk ourselves down, not to demean ourselves, but to put ourselves in a proper place. And we want to self-talk others up so that we will live for their benefit and celebrate them and get to know them and to be involved in their lives and build friendships among diverse people who may not normally and naturally connect tribally, but we can connect deeply as brothers and sisters in Christ, as recipients of your grace. Help us to walk this journey together toward a renewed mind, toward the vision of radical unity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.